Welcome to A Bun Dance. You guessed it, a podcast dedicated to all things surrounding dance. I am Kristen. And I am Hannah, and we are two best friends who are brought together by this art form. Please join us in five, six, seven, eight. Here's a word from our sponsor. Welcome everyone. We are super excited to be back after quite a long time, a little break we had. And today we have with us the incredible Kitty Lunn, dancer, teacher, disability activist, and founder of the Infinity Dance Theater, a company which features dancers with disabilities. I actually had the pleasure of hearing Kitty speak at the 2020 virtual NDEO conference in which I learned a little bit about her life and career. And just in our brief conversation, setting up this interview with Kitty, um, she expressed how long she's been at it all, which is truly remarkable. And we're just so excited to have you here with us today to learn more about your career and the wealth of wisdom that you have. So welcome, Kitty. I hope I have some wisdom after all of these years. <laughs> I've, learned, I've learned a few tricks along the way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Kitty, for being on our podcast. And to give our audience some background about you, can you begin with sharing when you began dancing and what styles you do? I started dancing when I was eight years old. Seems like a lifetime ago. Um, I was always a ballet type. But when I got to the Washington Ballet when I was 15 years old, that was my introduction to the Graham Technique. And I fell in love with it because I, at that time I had very long hair down past my waist and you could dance with your hair down mm -hmm. and you didn't have to cram your feet into point shoes. You could dance barefoot. It was a whole re revelation for me. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. Yeah. It's so cool to hear you talk about the difference between ballet and then when you discovered the modern dance. Yeah. So now in my classes, I teach a two hour class and we start with a Qigong warm up, a ballet bar, a ballet adagio, some Graham floor work, a Graham adagio, some Horton flat back series, some laterals, and then a Horton balance study. And then I combine all three into this big grand fusion adagio. And the reason I do that is so that the students can get comfortable going from one genre to the next seamlessly. And I work with an incredible musician who's playing the piano and the drums at the same time. Wow. That's so cool how you're able to combine all those different styles. And it sounds like probably produce very versatile dancers, which is obviously something that, you know, the dance world has been striving to, to kind of. Well, I think it's important. I, I think it's very important, particularly for dancers with disabilities who have not had much access to any formal dance training mm -hmm. to have the same access that their non-disabled peers have. And my hope behind the 25 years that I've been teaching is that I can give the students enough for them to go out and take other classes 
on their own, mm -hmm. cut the tether, you know? Because yeah. I think it's important to experience other teachers as well. I absolutely agree with that. And now um, kind of segueing a bit, can you just share a little bit with our audience about your accident that happened? Because this is clearly a pivotal point in your kind of story as a dancer and as a teacher. Oh, 35 years ago, I was leaving my day job. It was a very snowy day. And the place that I worked had marble steps. And I had snow boots on, I wasn't running, I was holding on to the rail and I hit a piece of ice and slipped and landed on the corner of a marble step and fractured my back. And what happened was the vertebrae shattered and I had bone fragments piercing my cord. So I was in the hospital for three years but the interesting thing about all of this was I was on my way to meet a man that I had just met. We were going to have dinner for the first time. And this was before cell phones. So before they carted me away in the ambulance, I gave someone his answering service number. We had live answering services that took messages, live people took messages. So that, cause I didn't want him to think I was standing him up. I liked him and I wanted to see him again. So the next thing I knew he was at the hospital and I was in for almost three years and we were married very shortly after I got out. Aww. Then, I was trying to, I, I used a manual chair at that time. And I was trying to get onto a sidewalk that didn't have a curb cut. And the front caster of my manual chair hit a, a hole and I went over backwards and fractured my neck. So that was a whole nother, whole nother series of hospitalizations. And this past December, I had my sixth spinal surgery. I'm so grateful that I, I am a dancer because going through all of this and having a knowledge of how the body works, I can't imagine going through all of this and not knowing how your body works. Being able to work with the physical therapist to help them help me. Yeah. So. Yeah, that was a long time ago, but in some ways it was yesterday. Yeah, I bet it really shaped your your story and everything that you're going through now. And I'm just, I, I just can't even fathom what that must have been like. And Well, it, it was devastating. Yeah. I had been a dancer since I was eight years old. And of course I thought my dancing days were over. Right. Well, it's it's great that you're still able to find though dance inside. Well, here's here's the thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You don't know until you're tested. Now, I'm 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 not trying to insinuate this the piece of cake. This was easy. It was not easy. Mm -hmm. I 
became severely depressed to the point I tried to take my own life because being a dancer was intri intrinsically who I was. It, it was very closely tied into my identity. It's one thing if a dancer makes a decision on her own or his own to stop dancing and do something else, but it's an entirely different kettle of fish if you feel like your identity has been stripped from you. And I didn't know who I was anymore. But my husband's to be at that time would tell you he was physically challenged in a room full of dancers, being very tall and two left feet. He said to me one day, well, if you want to dance, what's stopping you? I was stopping me. Fear was stopping me. In the meantime, they sent a physical therapist to my bedside in the other room where my piano is now. I had a hospital bed there and she had been a dancer. So we had a common vocabulary. And the one thing that Dr. Bronner never said to me was, you will never be able to do this. You can't do that. Don't even try. She figured I would figure things out on my own. And she wanted to see how much I could do rather than filling my head with everything I couldn't do. And as it turned out, I could do quite a lot. So she taught me safe transfers. She taught me what they call the activities of daily living, how to transfer to the shower chair, how, how to do practical things. And I was very weak because I had been in the hospital for, for nearly three years. I couldn't even sit up unsupported, but I worked. I had that dancer mindset when I put my mind to it. If I was going to live through this, I would have to learn how to do things for myself. And one day she took me, she took class with Ernesto Corvino and he had a school on the, in the mid, Midtown area, but it was really, truly up a steep and narrow stairway. So Shaw carried my manual chair up the stairs and I went up the stairs on my butt one at a time. And I watched class for the first time in a very long time. And my mind started turning. Well, how would I do that? So we made, we made a target date, Shaw and I did, as to when I would put my money on the table and go back to class. It was terrifying, you know? The Americans with Disabilities Act had just passed, so they had to let me in. Steps was only 20 blocks from where I lived. So it turned out that I was going to go to take my first class on a Saturday afternoon at noon. 
We worked on it. We worked on it. I mean, I can't hold my stomach in because I don't have any lower abdominals. Can't point my feet. Didn't know very much about what I was going to do, how I was going to do it, but I knew that I had to do it and that I had to figure it out. So I put my money on the table. They had to let me in. They were not best pleased about that. But Paloma Herrera and Vladimir Malakoff made a place for me at the bar. And I knew I was gonna be okay. Once I heard the music and I just, I don't use the word adapt, I use the word transpose because adapt seems less than, and I also sing. So frequently I have to transpose music into a different key, but you don't lose any of the notes. You just sing them in a higher key. Right. So transposing, why do most ballet classes start with plies? How, how, how could I do a demi-plie? Well, my work with Martha Graham at the Washington Ballet, demi-plie became a shallow contraction and a grand plie became a deeper contraction. Why? Because why do we do plies? You wanna start sending the blood flow to the legs, to the calf muscles. You want in a grand plie in first position, you wanna start opening that Achilles tendon so what on me corresponded to that? And that was my torso. Demi-plie and grand plie. And what I also learned is that when I do a grand plie and I'm contracting and the head is the last thing, I get a nice stretch in my cervical vertebrae. Mm -hmm. That helps. So then I was on a roll. Tandus, how many teachers in the entire universe use their arms and their hands to demonstrate? So my, my shoulder became my hip, turning out from my shoulder the same way I turned out from my hip. So the arm and the wrist and the hand and the fingers became my legs, my knees, my ankles, my feet, and my toes. And it was amazing to me how really similar, how much the process was the same. And Rondejean, turning out from my shoulder, all of that inspired me to figure out, well, what about frappes? When you use a manual wheelchair, you're not moving it sawing back and forth like you're sawing a log. You're pushing down on the wheel, down on the wheel. And what does frappe do? Frappe goes down and it goes down. So I was able to transpose a bar. And from that bar, if I could do devlapes at the bar this way, I could do adagio in the center. Pirouettes took a little more thinking 
And all the while, I come home and say to Andrew, the chair is doing this, but I needed to do that. And he would work on it. He would tweak the chair. And soon Andrew became the only person that we ever knew of who made chairs, manual wheelchairs specifically for dancing. Because there were things that a dance chair needs that a street chair would not do well. First of all, my chair weighs 17 pounds and has no brakes. I use racing tires. So I can move my manual chair, that chair right there with my fingertips. And on a smooth surface, I can get a lot of bang for the buck with one push and I can roll faster than anyone can bore on point. Mm -hmm. So for me, then it started feeling like ice dancing, mm. like in the Olympics. And I got very excited and I watched the Olympics and I would steal from them. I would steal from the ice dancers. If they can do that, how can I transpose that to work for my chair? And so it went, and so it goes. And so 35 years later, I know a lot more than I did on that auspicious day when I put my money on the table and they had to let me in. And I teach all over the world, at least I did before the pandemic. And now on Zoom, I have students, international students, I teach teachers because I'm only one person. And I come from the theory of each one, teach one. Each one, teach one. And I tell the teachers who are terrified because they always tell me they don't know anything about disability. They don't know anything about the wheelchair. It's not the student's first day using his or her wheelchair they know about their chair. What they don't know is how to dance. And I'm not gonna say it's gonna happen in five easy lessons. It, it, takes, it takes a while and things have to be age appropriate and it depends on the nature of the disability and how much use of your arms and what the strength of your hands are. And some people require, absolutely require, using a power chair all the time. And a power chair moves very differently than a manual chair. So that's a whole different technique that you have to think about in using a power chair. So, and so it goes, but isn't that how it began all those years ago? like 400 and some odd years ago. And it mm -hmm. has evolved. Yeah. It's, it's so, sorry, it's just so inspiring to hear about all of this and the discoveries that you've made had everything not happened the way it did, which obviously is, you know, a very unfortunate event that took place, but you've but just you done know, I remarkable think, things with it. I think it was destiny. Mm -hmm. 
because to be to be perfectly honest with you, I didn't do anything that someone else could not have done, mm -hmm. except for the fact that they didn't. Right. You know? Yeah. So, and, and I get it. I get it. When disability happens, life does not end unless you want it to. It's a choice. You can choose to sit and be depressed and be angry and blame everyone else and everything else and have a daily pity party. If that's your bag, if that's, if that's what you wanna do. That was, that was never for me. But I must say one other thing about my husband, Andrew who was not a dancer, but was an artist, a fabulous actor and an artist in his own right. Andrew was my rehearsal director and he had a tremendous eye, a theatrical eye. He knew spacing and he knew when something worked and it didn't. He didn't know a pot de beret from a chasse but if it wasn't working, he knew something was not working. Mm -hmm. And the chairs that he made for my students using manual chairs, everyone is different. Everybody is different. If you've seen one person with a spinal cord injury, you've seen one person with a spinal cord injury. There are some things that are in common, but you could have 10 people who have the same injury as I have. And we all function differently. We all have different abilities and the disability affects you, each one, differently. So I always tell a person who's starting out as a beginner, you have to be gentle with yourself. I've been doing this for a long time. I've been a dancer for 64 years. I started dancing when I was eight and I'm now 72. So that's a lot of plies and tendus under the bridge. <laughs> so you're not, I get this from beginners all the time. I'm never gonna look like you. And that's exactly true. And I'm never gonna look like them because I look like me and you look like you. And it does not matter what I can do. It matters what I can teach you to do in your own way, in your own body. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I just, I love hearing your take on all of this and learning about your philosophy because mm -hmm. as dancers, I feel like we're all different to begin with. And I think that it would make sense if you have a different injury, that it's going to be different because each person is an individual. Everyone is different. You can't expect to approach each disability the same. And that's totally okay. And, and to be gentle on yourself is absolutely like the right advice. Um, 
So I'm just I very- never had perfect turnout. Yeah. Stand up dancer. Right. I right. worked it. I laid on the floor in a frog position. I did all of that stuff. Some people were much more hypermobile than I was, and they had perfect turnout. I had to work for every inch of turnout that I had. I had to work for my extension. However, being a compact kind of person, I could jump and I could turn, and I had very strong feet. I could stand on point in my bare feet. So we all have different gifts and we all bring our gifts to the table. But it's funny thing about dancers because our instrument is our bodies and ourselves. And we're always looking in the mirror and judging ourselves against whoever's standing next to us. We, wanna, we, we don't wanna be like ourselves. When I was at the Washington Ballet, the great Agnes DeMille came as a guest artist. Now, Agnes DeMille had bosoms and she had a nice round bum. She would never have been considered having a perfect ballet body. So one day, now, trust me, I was like 16 years old, knew nothing. <laughs> Think you know everything, but you know nothing. And so I asked her after class, did she think it was a good idea? I was fantasizing about getting a bone transplant in my legs so I would be taller because Mr. Balanchine wanted you to be six feet tall on point. And on a good day, if I stood up very, very tall, I was five foot four. So what was I gonna do? I had to get a bone transplant. And Ms. DeMille took my face in her hands and she said, Kitty dear, you have to learn to dance in the body you have. Of course, I didn't like the body I had. She didn't understand anything, you know? I was 16, she didn't understand anything. However, fast forward after my accident, I'm in the hospital, couldn't sleep. Ted Koppel was doing Nightline and a lot of students from Gallaudet University were up in arms, I didn't know any deaf people. I didn't know about Gallaudet University and their hands were flying like this. And what the, what the thing was, and at that time, the 125 year history of Gallaudet, they had never had a deaf president of the college, of the university. And the faculty was not required to know American sign language. The students were required to read lips. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So <laughs> although that disability was different than my disability, I knew it had something to do in common with me. I didn't know what, but later I came to understand otherness, you know, after I got out of the hospital, even before Andrew and I were married, the first time we were going to go out to dinner, just in the neighborhood, not a fancy place, just in the neighborhood. And we're waiting online to be seated. And other people were being seated who had come in after us. And I asked the hostess, 
And she said, well, I'm waiting for the table in the back by the kitchen to open up because, because people don't want to see this when they're eating. Like seeing me sitting in my wheelchair was going to make somebody lose their appetite. I became an activist the next day. Yeah. Now, actually kind of segueing off of that a little bit, Kitty, um, how how did it take for people to latch on to this idea of what you were doing with Infinity Dance Theater? Did it take time or was there kind of- It's still taking time. So yeah, it's still, still taking time. There are still a lot, of, a lot of people in the dance world who do not believe that what I do is dancing. And it took me a long time to understand that that was their problem Mm -hmm. And not my problem, right. you know, and that if they were hell bent on thinking that what I do is not dancing, nothing I was going to say or do was going to change their mind. So I was going to waste any more time with that. I do my thing and my thing works, Yeah, not only for me it works for other people. I trained Alice Shepard, I trained Mark Brew, and although they each do different work than I do, you have to have a foundation. When my husband and I went to pick Mark Brew up at the airport from Australia at Kennedy Airport, he was this little scared rabbit sitting in a very, very deep bucketed seat wheelchair. And I said to Andrew, well, we're going to have to remedy that because you would never be able to work. Mark was, Mark is very tall and thin. So sitting in this bucket seat, his knees were up around his chin practically. So the first thing I had to do was change his center of gravity. And I didn't have a whole hell of a lot of time to say, well, take your time and six years later, maybe. No, I had three days to change his center of gravity. And I said, you're gonna to have to trust me with this. And we did. And I changed his center of gravity in three days. And Andrew built him a proper dance chair wow. and it changed his life. So you never know. Each one, teach one. It's kind of, you're, you're way too young to remember the Fabergé commercial about, I'll tell two friends and you'll tell two friends and they'll tell two friends and, and so forth and so on. But that's kind of how it goes, you know? Mm -hmm. how, how did anyone start dancing? Yeah. Passed down from Louis XIV through the French court. Mr. Balanchine started dancing in Russia. He had a, a kind of a different take on it than Ruth St. Dennis. Ruth St. Dennis was doing dances sitting down over a hundred years ago. Martha Graham's Lamentations, her butt never comes off that cube. So sitting down was not the issue. The medical device was the issue. People were focused on the medical device. 
Yeah. And so I don't I don't teach from the medical model. I teach from the artistic model. Because if Baryshnikov puts someone in a rolling office chair, for example, well, that might be very creative and very interesting. But the minute someone sees a wheelchair, they already have a preconceived idea as to what that means. Mm -hmm. And did I see, I didn't know when I first became disabled that anyone who uses a wheelchair is also very hard of hearing. They think that we're simple-minded and hard of hearing. And they start talking very loudly and very clearly. And some people will ask the most astonishing questions waiting for a bus. Waiting for a bus, woman asks me, how do you go to the bathroom? Can you have sex? To which I said, yes, early and often. So, I mean, would they dare ask a non-disabled person those same questions? No. I'm really sorry to hear that you've had some of those. Well, you know, ignorance is not against the law. Discrimination is against the law, but ignorance is not against the law. What else do you want to know? <laughs> well, Kitty, thank you so much again for sharing this whole story. I just keep getting more and more inspired by you by the minute. Um, and I'm sure our audience will too. I want to ask a little bit more about Infinity Dance Theater and I'm curious where your company performs and if you're doing any performing right now or if that's been kind of sidelined because of the pandemic. Well, it, here's the thing with the pandemic. <laughs> you know, I'm still teaching on Zoom because the population that I teach to is mostly immunocompromised, including mm -hmm. myself. And so I'm, I'm not really ready to go into a room with 25 other people. So I'm working myself up to go back into class, but I take class every day on Zoom, the same class that I would take in the studio. And right now, what I'm, what I'm really concentrating on, I have a non-disabled assistant, Luisa Rigetto. She's from Brazil. She's fabulous. Legs that begin at her earlobes. <laughs> I thought I would hate her, but I actually love her, you know? <laughs> so we have developed what I call my thesis. So we have this program that we created, Ballet Bar. She's doing the standing version. I'm doing the seated version. The Adagio, I'm doing the seated version. She's doing the standing version. And you, you see us side by side doing this so that the context makes sense. She's the one who has the teaching certificate in Graham. So Louisa leads all of the Graham stuff. And I learned Horton technique after I was already in the chair from Milton Myers. So 
We combine all of that and we're taking it on the road to Atlanta to the NDEO big national conference where all the teachers come, dance education majors come and they're going to see because I, I am very tired of people saying, I don't know what to do. The ADA is 30 years old. You don't know what to do because you don't want to learn what to do. So what happens when they say, I don't know what to do, they don't do anything about it. And if they do do anything, it's just creative movement stuff. So then I said, well, we need to create a piece of choreography that couldn't possibly do in this apartment. So I live not too far away from Valley Hispanico. Okay. So we rented studio space and I created a piece called Etude. And what is Etude? Etude is a study. And in this Etude piece of choreography in four, four minutes, we have ballet, you have Graham and you have Horton a lot of the things that they're going to see in those adagios. So I also subscribe to the Doris Humphrey feeling about dance that every dance is too long. That, I mean, I, I went to see a dance performance last night. It was an hour and 45 minutes of dancing and a 20 minute intermission. So it was two hours and five minutes of my time and they had said everything that they needed to say in the first 30 to 45 minutes. And the rest of it was redundancy. When an audience is busy looking at their watch <laughs> to see when the next intermission is coming so they can either go to the bathroom, get a drink at the bar or leave, then the dance is too long. I'm not saying that it wasn't good work, it just didn't need to be two hours and five minutes long. I feel like that's very self-indulgent. So my etudes piece is only four minutes long because they will have sat through the whole other stuff. But I wanted to do this piece to show them that the technique goes right into the choreography. Because after all, what is technique for? Why do we take class? Why do we do the center floor? Because choreography is made from these things. Mm -hmm. And if you have difficult pirouettes in the choreography, you go to class and you work on it, you know? Or you take a partnering class or, 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 or whatever. But the, the technique goes on into the choreography onto the stage. So that's why I made this etudes piece. And so that's what we're concentrating on right now until everyone feels comfortable to be in the studio working together. Right before the pandemic, we had a big performance and I made a piece I had always wanted to use Ravel's Bolero, but everybody has used Ravel's Bolero. So I started doing some research. And what I learned was when Ravel was working on his Bolero, he was working in a factory. 
And the driving rhythms of the bolero comes from the driving rhythms of the factory machines. So my piece was called The Ghosts in the Machine. So the set was all big machine pictures like, like the Charlie Chaplin one, the famous one. And we had a scrim that had the outside of the factory with smokestacks and belching smoke and all of that. And so in the evening when the factory workers left for the night, the ghosts would come out. And it was a whole, a whole dance. However, the factory foreman comes in early and catches us dancing, but we seduce him. He's non-disabled, we seduce him. He comes up on stage and I have a wonderful duet with him and we capture him. And at the end, after the big crash in the bolero, all surrounding him, he's on the ground. There's a power chair in the piece. He's holding on to the back of the power chair and we drag him off on his belly into our world, into the machines. It was great good fun, great good fun. Takes a lot of room though, when you have six wheelchairs and all of that stuff going on. So wheelchair dancing requires space. It requires an even floor. You have no idea how irregular most floors are until you're on wheels. I prefer a wooden floor rather than marley, although you can have marley if it's not too thick, because that's like dancing on quicksand. Mm -hmm. So wheelchair dance has its own genre, just like any other dance form. Yeah. And Kitty, lastly, before we end our interview for today, do you have any last thoughts or wisdom you could leave our audience with? <laughs> wisdom. Um, well, one thing I would tell you is, had I known 35 years ago how difficult this was going to be, I might have thought twice about it. The fundraising part is the part that I like the least. So I have other people doing that for me. You can't do everything. This is for all of us, whether you have a disability or you don't. No one person can do everything. And so for the micromanagers out there who feel like they're the only ones who can get this done and it, it can't be done correctly unless they do it. Give it up. Give that up. Because I learned a long time ago, I don't have grant writing skills. But my grant writer doesn't have chore choreographic skills either. So each one brings to the table their gift. And it does take a village. 
it does take a village, but you have to start somewhere. And it's very expensive. It is very, ex dance is very expensive. Taking class is very expensive. It's, it's it, in New York, it's gotten so ridiculously expensive. That's why I don't charge for my classes. I get grant money that funds the classes because for the population that I teach, $22 for a dance class might be half of their phone bill, you know? So for me, it's much more important that a person have the opportunity to be exposed than impoverished. Right. Because I think that's really important and really honorable that you recognize that and, and work to make what you do as accessible as, as possible. Otherwise, the art form doesn't thrive. I have noticed in the last five years or so, maybe six years, dance and disability is not so taboo. More people are talking about it, but it takes more than talking about it to get it to get it off the ground. Right. And I, I, I pay for class every day, for at least five or six days a week. But I know other people cannot do that. So the $10 that I would take from everyone isn't gonna make a whole lot of difference in my life but it could make a whole lot of difference in their life, you know? Yeah. And I would rather they get the exposure and the experience of dancing because you never know, no teacher knows, you never know where that next talented student is gonna come from. That next, brilliant, ta brilliantly talented student may be living in a homeless shelter, you know, with no possible opportunity to take class. Right. So I want to leave, I want to leave it with this. I think one of the worst forms of discrimination there is is for one person to determine what another person is capable of learning. We all learn differently. Some need one-on-one -on -one and some have a very natural aptitude for it, but we're all capable if we're alive, if we are breathing, If we are breathing, there is motion going on. There is motion going on. You have trillions of cells that are moving constantly all the time. If they weren't, you would be dead. So ask yourself, what is holding you back? And chances are you're holding yourself back. 
Yeah, that's really powerful. And I think a really great note to, to end things on. Agreed. Wow. Really powerful, Kitty. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for asking me. Thank you for asking me. Thanks for tuning into Abundance. We appreciate your support. We hope to have PK in your interest. Feel free to contact us at AbundancePodcast5678 at gmail.com and give us feedback on what you'd like to hear. That is Abundance without parentheses. Go dance yourself silly. Bye for now. A special thank you to Richard D. Fiore for our lovely podcast tune and Matt Mellish for our cover art.